The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. I want to introduce Lyric Fesco is preaching for me today as a kind man that he is. He's been here a few times. He's a director of discipleship over Christ Pres, and uh, we've become deep good friends over the years and uh, make fun of each other a lot for things and exchange a lot of Seinfeld quotes, but um, yes. But I want to read for um, us and for him the scripture this morning. We're walking through the book of First Peter, a letter written by Peter, uh, yes, the apostle, the disciple himself. And as I read this, um, hear God's word this morning from First Peter. It's a letter that he wrote, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning in eternal, the br- external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart within the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman, as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, and brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. Is that the passage I'm preaching on? Wow. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. It's great to be back here at Music Row with you all today. Thank you, Stacy, for, uh, for having me again. We're continuing our series in 1 Peter. And uh, it should be noted that the Apostle Paul, as Stacy mentioned, uh, wrote this letter to the Christian and, and churches, Christians and churches that have been scattered all across Asia Minor. And the reason they've been scattered is because they're facing tremendous persecution. So this letter was written in the context of suffering. And this week we're talking about marriage. I thought that was going to get a laugh. I even said, <laughs> I even said pause for laughter. In all seriousness, all seriousness, that is the context of this letter. He's addressing suffering. And it's important to understand that heading into our passage today, because it, you really have to be able to wrap your mind around the entire arc of where Peter is going here before you get to this passage today. Foundational context is so, so, so important, as in this passage, as is the case with all the Bible. I have an older brother, and uh, when we were kids, I remember one instance where he decided he wanted to do us all a favor and cook us a meal. Did he have any expertise in cooking? He absolutely did not. Uh, But he thought he was smart enough to figure it out. In his mind, all it takes is the ability to follow instructions. He thought, if I get this cookbook out, and I carefully follow the instructions, at the end of the process, I'm going to have a perfect meal, and my family will love me for it. So my, my parents obliged and, and let him take a swing at it. 
He looked through the cookbook and he, and he picked out a recipe for meatloaf. I know for many of you that's strike one. Uh, my personal opinion is that uh, meatloaf just needs to talk to a good PR firm. It's hard to sound delicious when your name is meatloaf, right? <laughs> he decided he would make for us a meatloaf, so he began to follow the instructions as carefully as he possibly could, adding all the in ingredients one by one, which he would then mix in a bowl before shaping into a loaf. He was very careful. However, as a rookie chef, he didn't correctly distinguish the difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon. Okay? Now, which surprisingly won't throw off the recipe by much, except when it comes to things like salt. All right? Uh, when he pulled, pulled the meatloaf out of the oven, it looked good. Uh, it looked just like the others we'd had before. When he served it, it actually smelled good. However, when we took our first bite, did it taste good? Not so much. Uh, it was so salty. And the harsh truth is that he, he was doomed from the start. Without a proper understanding of the difference between teaspoons and tablespoons, there was virtually no chance that he was going to produce an edible product. He lacked the proper foundation, a necessary foundational understanding of something that's otherwise pretty straightforward. Too often we'll, we'll, jump, we'll, jump into the, the, we'll jump right into the scripture like this and pull a verse out of a larger context that has to do with, with marriage and submission and all those kinds of things. And, and we immediately greet it with resistance. We immediately bristle at it. And part of the reason we bristle at it is because we don't have a solid foundation supporting our, our conclusions, our, our, our concluding thoughts. It's doomed from the start. And no matter what we try and put around it, however else we'll try and dress it up, we'll always wince at it because we've missed something elemental from the start. We form our opinions on matters based on what we're experiencing now rather than, than tracing it back to the beginning and understand what was born, how, what was born, uh, what was born out of. So, so before we jump into the text, we're going to back up just a little bit. We're going to back up just a little bit and talk about the why and the how of this passage, the why and the how. Peter begins his letter, beginning in chapter 1, with a reminder. A reminder of who these Christians are. Their earthly condition, whatever they're going through, does not compose their identity. He tells them they are born again. They're elect. They're God's chosen. The children of an, of an eternal inheritance. Moreover, he tells them they are exiles and sojourners, meaning their citizenship lies in heaven, not here. This world is not your home. You're, you're being prepared for something final, something eternal. And, and understanding all this, remembering all this, provides them with a basis for understanding what he gets to starting in chapter 2. He starts getting into specifics. In light of the fact that you're all these things, here's how you should look. Here, here's how that should live out. This is what your behavior should look like considering what you know to be true about your future. And then he says, beginning with the subject of honoring anybody, honoring everybody, honoring everybody, honor everyone, he says. He says in 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone. And he starts with the emperor, who at the time was Nero, a pretty awful guy who mistreated, even killed Christians. So yes, honor the emperor, even Nero. And then he moves into instruction for bond servants who should honor their masters. And he even goes on to say, and not just the good ones, all of them. And then he makes his way into the homes. It's like he's cascading his way down uh, 
government, workplace, and, and now the home. And his instruction remains persistent. Here's at the heart of what he's saying in all this talk of authority and submission. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. And that's really important to understand once we get to talking about husbands and wives and their respective roles. Because if you don't understand the background leading up to this instruction on, on husbands and wives, you'll never be at ease with this. You'll never be at ease with what the text is saying. And yes, there is an element, a significant element of suffering here. Peter begins with the wives saying, be subject to your own husbands. And then he basically says, even the ones who aren't Christians. And if you find that to be an audacious instruction, I, I understand. It's as audacious as Peter telling Christians to honor the emperor, be subject to him. The guy who literally burned down Rome and then blamed the Christians for it. Peter, you really want us to honor that guy? Are you kidding me? And this, this rationale that he provides for honoring the emperor, as awful as he is, is nearly identical to the rationale he's providing for, for wives who he's telling to be subject to their husbands, even the ones who aren't Christians, even the ones who aren't good, he says. Why? Why would Peter tell us to do something like this? Why is he asking us this? Because in so doing, he says, you're pointing to something else. Something heavenly, something eternal, something of your true identity, not your temporary one. I, uh, I spent my childhood years in the San Francisco Bay Area. And one of the things that San Francisco has always been known for is their sourdough bread. It's, uh, there's nothing like it in the world. And, and the way they make the bread affects other foods that have bread in them too. So for instance, their pizza. Imagine a sourdough pizza, sourdough crust pizza. Uh, there's nothing quite like it. You hear a lot about New York pizza and Chicago pizza, but don't sleep on San Francisco pizza. And it's better, better than meatloaf too, I, I assure you. So part of our family's routine was Pizza Friday. Every single Friday night, we'd get to get, uh, go to a pizza place, local shop that we would always go to. For as long as I can remember, this was our routine. We seldom broke from it. Then right when I was starting high school, my dad got a job transfer, and, and we took us out to Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta has a lot of great things, but you don't hear people talking about the pizza in Atlanta. We looked for a pizza place and bounced around to a few different restaurants, but never really found something we liked as much as the pizza from our old stomping ground in, in San Francisco. So that was at the start of high school. Well, I didn't go back to San Francisco until I was in my late 20s. We, we went back for my cousin's wedding, and we, when we touched down, my first request was to go to the pizza shop that we visited every Friday night. And, and, and when we did, we ordered our usual, it came out, and would you believe, as I took a bite into that pizza, it brought tears to my eyes, literal tears to my eyes. Now, now some of you might be thinking, man, you've got a problem. I really did. I got all choked up about it as I ate it. Do you know the next night my, my family asked, well, where are we going to go to eat tonight? And, and I said, let's go back. Let's go back to the pizza place. And another one of my California family members says, you went there yesterday. And I was explained, I know, it's just that I haven't had this pizza in what, some 12 to 15 years or more? I can't just come into town and have it once, right? And they told me, you know, there are so many better pizza places out here than, than that one. If you really want good pizza, I'll take you to any other one of these 10 places that are, that are better. And here's what I replied with. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure there are better pizza places around. But when I bite into the pizza at the old pizza place... 
it's like I can taste my childhood. It's like I can taste the memory. I bet you didn't know pizza could be transcendent. It's not that I was actually taken back to my childhood, but it was an echo of my childhood, of which I have very fond, happy memories. It's not that I went back literally to my childhood, but, but it was a reflection of it. And so I have a great deal of affection for it. Even though there might be better pizza out there, it's an echo of something else. It's an echo of something deeper. We honor authority in government, the workplace, in the household, as imperfect as they are, there are better ones out there because of what they reflect. We honor it because of what they, what they echo. The fact that anyone has any authority at all, be it in government, workplace, or the home, is because it was granted to them by God. And whether they do it well or not, they reflect the reality of the supreme authority. We submit to the authority over us, and in so doing, we bear witness to the authority of God himself. We're not honoring man, we honor God. So when we talk about submitting to authority, we tend to be skeptical. Submit to who? Why? Let me frame it another way. When you look at your neighbor, when you look at your neighbor, you're told to love your neighbor. Do we do it? Yes, we have an easier time getting on board with, with instructions like that with loving our neighbor. Whether they're a Christian or not, we love all people. Sure, I can do that. I'm not offended by your instruction. Many of you might be familiar with the parable of, uh, of the Good Samaritan, and it's illustrative of the instruction to love your neighbor. If you're not familiar with this parable, I believe our next sermon series is going to be on the parables of Jesus. Uh, we'll get a chance to go in deep on a number of one, including this one. But the parable of the Good Samaritan, in short, is Jesus teaching his disciples about loving your neighbor. There was a man who was on the road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was beaten and robbed. He was cast aside and left for dead. It wasn't the priest who walked by to help him. It wasn't the Levite, the temple worker, who stopped and helped him, but it was the Samaritan who helped him. It was a Samaritan, of all people. Not a good Jewish person, but a Samaritan, whom at the time many of the Jews would have looked down upon, believing them not to be as Jewish as they were. So who was the loving neighbor in this story? Now, what's interesting about this parable is that it's an answer to a question that was posed to Jesus. The question was put to Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer responded with, uh, well, and Jesus answered, teacher, what shall I do to inherit? And the lawyer responded with, you shall love your neighbor. This is, he was asking him, you shall love your neighbor, excuse me, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responded to him by saying, yep, that's it. That's it. Do that and you'll live. And interestingly, the lawyer then replies back with, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus then tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus is throwing away a few misunderstandings about the scriptures in, in, in the telling of this parable. Because the lawyer, the experts in the law, who once read the law, in the law that they should love their neighbor, took that to mean my neighbor, love my neighbor, that means my fellow Jew. I'm to love my fellow Jew, that is my neighbor. That's what the command says. And since that's what the command says, and that's who they tell me I'm supposed to love, that means I'm free to hate anyone else. That's how they read it. 
I'm free to hate. I love my neighbor who is the Jew. Everyone else I'm free to hate, including and especially the Samaritan. And Jesus is saying here, oh no, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your neighbor is literally everyone. Everyone. And that's something really important to understand in the context of submitting to authority. We love everyone. If you're a Christian, your neighbor is everyone to the exclusion of no one. Love your neighbor. Now, here's where we start connecting the dots. Why did God tie these two things together? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor. Why are these two connected? We love God because he is God. We love our neighbor because they bear the image of God. That, that's why when Jesus asked in another gospel account, you know, what the greatest command, commandment was, he said the single greatest command is this, 1A and, and 1B. Love God, love people. Everyone you encounter, every human being you encounter is an image bearer of God, a reflection of something greater, an echo of something greater. And, and for that reason alone, we honor and love our neighbor because the deeper truth that they reflect, even if they unknowingly reflect it. So when God tells us to honor earthly authority, we honor authority not because they are innately deserving of it, but because the deeper truth they reflect, the honoring of authority is not born out of the goodness we find in any individual. It's born out of the heavenly order. In the same way we honor all image bearers, we honor all the institutions which bear the image of heaven. Think of it this way. We honor our neighbors because they cast the image of God. We honor authority, all authority, because it too is cast in the image of God. It too is a reflection of God's character. We honor anyone and everyone in authority because of what we believe about God, not because of what we believe about the individual. And so Peter says, because of, because of this, because of who you are, because of, of what you believe to be true about God, honor and submit to the authority that has been placed above you, which, albeit imperfectly, is a reflection of a heavenly order. Now, it's important here to clarify. Honor does not mean blind obedience. When the authority above us improperly reflects the authority of our Heavenly Father, yes, at that point, our duty is to make God known. And, and there are always ways that we can do that with respect and honor. Think of Daniel and his three friends. They refused to bow down to anyone but the Lord, and they de defied the king's orders with respect, but they would not bow down. And again, that's not just proper for those who are, find themselves in a, in a subordinate position. It's, it's proper for everyone. It's right for everyone. Always show honor and respect to everyone. But honor and respect is not blind obedience. So that's why we submit ourselves to authority. But it's worth discussing what authority should look like. What should authority look like? Because here's where our feet are held to the fire. It's one thing to say honor the emperor because we can walk away from that instruction, whether we like it or not with a good idea of what, of what I need to do next as the, as the emperor's subjects. And we have a great potential to be of similar mind on, on what that looks like. You know why? Because we're all subjects of the emperor. Unless you're the emperor, you're being asked to do what everyone else is being asked to do. It's a level playing field. Well, then we move to masters and bondservants, according to Peter's flow here. Okay, now we might start to see the room divide a little bit. Most of us are workers. Maybe a handful of you are bosses who, who sit at the, atop the organization. 
those that might fit into that master's category. But, but then we move on to husbands and wives. Now we really want to know, okay, who's supposed to do what? Who's supposed to be, and, and be very careful how you answer it, Lyric. We have a divided room, nearly 50-50, right? Tell me plainly, what does the wife do? What does the husband do? That's what we, that's what we never what we want to know. What does this mean? At the end of the day, somewhere deep down inside of all, this, all these questions, what might be at the root of what men and, both, men and women both want to know of this passage is, who's in charge? Who gets to do what? And it's a fair question. But if that's what we're asking, we might not be thinking about it the way the passage has laid itself out for us here. We might be forgetting the foundational elements behind the passage. It wasn't so long ago that uh, we were doing some landscaping at the house, and uh, it involved pulling some old shrubs out and planting some new stuff in. Now, there are all kinds of ways you can remove shrubs and trees and, and the like from your yard. You can chop them down and then maybe rent a stump grinder or something to get at the stump. Or, or you can also chop them down and then dig up the stumps with a shovel. That, you know, that takes a lot of time, a lot of sweat, and a lot of time. Did I mention that? Or you can tie the chain to your father-in-law's truck and yank the stumps out from the earth in one fell swoop. That was the option we decided to take. Uh, we gave it about three or four good tries, and each time the stump got the best of us. Sometimes the, the chain would break free, and other times the chain would just break. And at the end of the day, the literal end of the day, we just decided maybe this job is best done with a shovel. Now, it would be really easy for me to get upset at the truck. Why can't the truck just be stronger? Or what if I tried to convince my father-in-law to never use his truck again for anything? It wasn't able to pull out the stump here. What's next that it won't be able to do for you, right? Wouldn't that be ridiculous? If I'm not using the truck to its design purpose, I really shouldn't be upset with the truck. A more absurd comparison is that I, I can't be upset with the truck if it doesn't toast bread well. That's not its design purpose. The primary reason my father-in-law owns a truck is to get him from point A to point B and occasionally haul stuff in the back. That's why he got the truck. At no point, I'm quite certain, did the salesperson who, who sold him the truck say, I think you should buy this truck to yank out all your son-in-law's evergreens. I don't think that was ever said. I don't think that was ever promised. I shouldn't be upset with a truck if I'm using it outside of its intended purpose. We tend to similarly utilize authority in this manner. It's almost... In any context you can think of, authority is not a warm, fuzzy word. Why? Because we tend to conflate authority with power, and power usually gets conflated with control. And so we think of authority and filter it through our modern ears and think that it's mostly about control. Well, what if I told you that can be and is often a misuse of authority as the Bible defines it? Think of how the Bible defines authority. Think of how the Bible speaks of it. It's seldom in the context of control as it relates to those who submit to the Lord. And more in the context of protection and sacrifice and provision. Those who submit to the Lord find freedom on the other side. The imagery of Christ as the good shepherd is, is used throughout the New Testament. The shepherd, has, yes, has authority over the sheep. But the shepherd also says, John 10, 14, 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. What do you hear in that passage? Do you hear control? 
I hear intimacy. I hear sacrifice. How often do we read about the power of God in the Bible and it's speaking in reference to his power over everything, including and especially our enemies? Exodus 14, 13 to 14 shows us what his role was in, as Israel faced the threat of Pharaoh and his scores of ar armies. Moses told the Israelites, fear not, stand firm. See and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. What do you hear in that passage? Control? I hear provision and protection. What does the Lord do with his power? He does this, Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's powerful. And he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths that, that shall faint shall be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, those who submit to the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. What do you hear in that passage? Do you hear control? I hear support. Life-saving and life-giving support. Strength for the faint and weary from and by his power. Do you see what this is saying? He who has all the power, he who has all the power, he who has all the authority, is there any trace of selfishness in his use of it? Or is his power used for the protection, provision, strengthening, and for the life of all those who submit to him? To him? Or think about this. Think about Christ himself. Remember, the Lord's objective is to make us like his son. So let's consider Christ himself. We're being made to be like this. Sometimes we associate submission to inferiority. If I'm being asked to submit, it's because I'm inferior. Here are two things to consider from Jesus himself. Jesus Christ, the Son, has the same essence as the Father. Absolutely nowhere in the Bible are we told that Jesus is inferior to the Father. Nowhere. Nowhere. Yet in the economy of redemption, the Father sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. In the economy of redemption, Christ is subordinate to the Father. But nowhere is it stated or implied that Jesus is somehow inferior to the Father. He isn't. He's, at, he's the same essence of the Father. He is one with the Father, but the Son submits to the work of the Father willingly and joyfully. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ, the Son, whom the Scriptures refer to as the Bridegroom, the church is his bride, and he is the bridegroom. So when Peter tells husbands to honor their wives, he's echoing the teaching of Paul in Ephesians, where he says in, in chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, when, when Peter tells you to submit to your husband, he's saying, Do what Jesus did. Imitate Christ who submitted to his Father. In the same manner, husbands... When Peter tells you to love your wife, he's saying, do what Jesus did. Imitate Christ who gave himself up for his church. In other words, neither party is called to do anything which Christ hasn't already done. 
Both parties are called to reflect the behavior of Christ. Remember, we're reflections. We're reflections. We're echoes of who he is and what he has done. You see, the Bible allows for authority, but at the same time, it insists upon selflessness. It allows for authority, but leaves no room for selfishness. Both the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, are charged with taking on the posture of humility, each serving the other. Why? Because it's what Christ did for us. It's reflective of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 and following, what does it tell us? Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead, what did he do? He emptied himself in the form of a servant. He made himself a servant. The most powerful person the world has ever known, Jesus, Hebrews 1, 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Colossians 1, 17 also says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The most powerful person the world has ever known, he did what? He made himself a servant. So by that rationale, if you have one ounce of power, an ounce of authority, how is that authority to be used? As a servant, as a mechanism to love your neighbor. Anything else is a misuse of its design. I dare say we don't bristle at the idea of authority when it's used to reflect the heavenly ethic. It's only when it's misused we then push back upon it. Okay, Lyric, I, I think I can get on board with the concept of authority and submission as mutual acts of service, but what about all this other talk in this passage about women not braiding their hair and, and wearing gold jewelry? Is this a commandment that restricts what I can and can't wear? No, not at all. He's saying, he's not saying don't do these things. Listen to what he's saying, verse 3. Let's listen to it again. Do not let your adorning be external the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's as if Peter is saying, yeah, all those things are nice, but don't let that be your adornment, he says. The word he uses there for adornment is the same word other places in the Bible uses for the word creation, the cosmos. When the Lord brought about the cosmos, he, he, he did so and said, he said that it was good. It's good. This is good. It was beautiful. It was set in order and it was decorated. It was good. In other words, Peter is saying, don't let these things be the thing that, that marks you as good. Don't be caught up with outward displays of beauty because the most beautiful thing about you is your soul. So why is he saying this to women? Why isn't he saying this to men too? Because again, we have to remember context. He's talking to the sufferer, and in this instance, the Christian woman who might not be married to the Christian man. So how do you, how do you win his soul, he's saying. It's not through external beauty. Your husband, your unsaved husband, can only be brought to faith through the hidden things of the heart, he says. And here's the truth. Here's the truth of the matter. Yes, Peter's specifically talking to wives here, but there's no reason to believe this isn't true for all of us. This instruction, this too, is also a reflection of Christ. It's an echo of Christ. Isaiah 53, 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, it wasn't his outward appearance that drew us near. It was the work of condescending to us as a servant. 
his suffering and his righteousness that saved us, that, that was his adornment for us. He made us beautiful by way of his work. So this, just like everything else we looked at today, is nothing more than a call to imitate Christ. That's what this passage is saying. Imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. Honor everyone. Honor everyone in your, in your imitating of Christ. Be conformed to his likeness. And if we walk away with that foundational understanding, when we read this passage, when we read passages like this, it, it, won't, it won't come with a bitter taste, like, like a bad meatloaf. You and I and every Christian are called to be echoes of Christ. That's what we're called to do, to echo Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He submitted himself to the cross. He gave his body and his blood. We see before here on this table, he gave his body and his blood so that we might be drawn near to him. He made himself a servant so that we might be drawn near and conformed to his likeness. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction. Even when we encounter difficult passages, when we explore the depths of your, your word, we find that we're ultimately told to, to follow in the footsteps of Christ because you are conforming us to be like him. Help us to do what you've asked us to do. Help us to die to our sin and live unto the righteousness of Christ. Help us to set our standards based on what we know to be true of you and not through anyone or anything else. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life and, and death, which has brought us near to you once again. And in his name we pray. Amen.